0: For the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org.
1: Zionism used to be a unifying feature of American Jewish life. That is no longer the case. We can't talk about Israel anymore. There's a huge gap generationally. We feel paralyzed. We feel restricted. Fear seems to be preventing people from taking the small steps to talk about the issues. How can we commit ourselves to a morally aspirational Zionism? That's a complex topic, but one the Shalom Hartman Institute is unafraid to explore. We need to set an example for how we can stay connected to Israel and also hold Israel accountable. After a two-year hiatus, Hartman is opening the doors of our campus in Israel for the Community Leadership Program, an intensive week of Jewish ideas, deep text learning, and critical discourse on the issues that matter in our Jewish communities today. You get to be in Jerusalem with amazing faculty who are bursting with fresh ideas that they want to share with Jewish leaders. Join lay leaders from around the world in Jerusalem, June 22nd through 29th. Register at shalomhartman.org forward slash summer leadership. Let's do this work together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kertzer, we're recording on Monday, March 14th, 2022. So let's say I woke you up in the middle of the night or accosted you in the middle of the street. Now, I'm not going to do either of those things, but let's say I did, and I asked you, what's the most important Jewish holiday on the calendar, the most theologically significant, the most resonant to the modern Jewish experience? I think maybe you'd say Passover, the holiday of Jewish liberation, or maybe Yom Kippur, the sacred day of atonement. After all, those are the holidays with the real traffic on the base paths for all Jews, regardless of denominational affiliation or whatever kind of Judaism you practice. And maybe a few would say Rosh Hashanah, The people who wanted to be edgy politically might raise up Yom Ha'atz Israel's Independence Day, or then maybe some people would think it's a trick question and give the answer Shabbat, which is actually a pretty good answer, um, even though it rolls around every week. I'd venture to say that most of you, except those of you who already saw the title for this week's show and who like to please, would probably not say Purim. This week's episode is to tell you why you are wrong and to make the case for why Purim may be the most significant day on the Jewish liturgical calendar. Just to be clear, although Purim is our upside-down, topsy-turvy day, what we're going to talk about today is not Purim Torah. It's utterly serious business. I don't think you can make sense of Judaism, politics, and theology without this theatrical single-day semi-festival in the middle of the month of Adar, lost in the fog of the equinox and in the panic about the Passover items that are already starting to fill the supermarket shelves. Here are the basic facts of Purim. It's a one-day holiday. If you happen to live in a city that was walled a couple thousand years ago, it kind of is a two-day holiday. We won't get into that today since New York does not count as one of those cities. It's a one-day holiday that's marked by a few ritual obligations, principle of which is the reading of the Scroll of Esther, which is just about the strangest book in the Bible, a status it achieves not only by not mentioning God at all, even in the moment of deliverance of the Jewish people from the evil plan put in place by the wicked Haman, but also for the book's absolute ribaldry, drinking, sex, political conniving, and those are the good guys. Purim requires of us to give charity, to give foods to one another, and to celebrate with a feast, and in practice, it's full of masquerade. The sum total of how Purim tends to be talked about and observed is that it tends to privilege two populations of people for whom it appears custom designed. People who like drinking, that's a big part of the day, and children. But for serious people, sometimes it seems inscrutable. But the case for Purim is extensive and can be made with reference to The Book of Esther itself as well as through its ritual performance. By the way, I do recommend as the accompanying reading for this episode, The Book of Esther, it's probably better than you remember and try to focus on those parts that seem uh, less relevant to the plot of the story, including the context, the background, all of the in-between stuff. I had a professor in graduate school named James Kugel, and he used to say this line where he said at one point, he was taking a course on a book of the Apocrypha called the Book of Jubilees, an amazing book from the Second Temple period. He said, you know, some Jews say that every word of the Bible is there for a reason. He said, I'm not sure if that's true, but I do believe it's true about the Book of Jubilees. So I think that's true about the book of Esther. It's an extraordinary and magnificent book and it's full of little Easter eggs. What I wanna to do today is offer seven theses on Purim's importance and then my guest and I are gonna work our way through each of them. Right now I'm gonna list them and then we're gonna go one by one to go with my guest after I introduce them. Here's the seven theses. Number one, no one is coming to rescue us. Number two, the king is dead, long live the king. Number three, faith in the darkness. Number four, Purim is the high holidays of the skeptic. Number five, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we might die. Number six, are we any better than our enemies? And number seven, empire endures. My conversation partner today to go through all of these uh, and to chat together about Esther, Purim, and all things related to the season of memory that we're currently in. He's a returning guest to Identity Crisis. You may remember him from the all-star panel of the great American Jewish music episode. Rabbi David Beshevkin is director of education for NCSY at the Orthodox Union. He's a podcaster. His show now is called 1840. I also think he does a Daf Yomi podcast as well through Tablet. He's an author of a book on sin and failure and a lot of other articles. And, David, welcome back. And first, give me your hot take. Where are you on Purim? I,
0: Big
1: fan of Purim?
0: I love that intro. If we were doing any other episode— And this is crazy, maybe even take this out, but I'm going to correct you, I am now a rabbi doctor, and there's no other episode that I would have said that if not for the Purim episode shows you how seriously I take that. Uh, That was in the Purim spirit. I am a huge fan of Purim. My childhood, teenage years, and adulthood could be mapped out in my evolving relationship to Purim and how I've contended with the day and all of its expectations in a way— And the whole feeling of the day, there's no other holiday where I feel has grown up with me than my relationship to Purim.
1: Let's spend another minute on that because I feel the same. I feel like my Purim as a kid was something totally different. It was like fine. It was fun. My Purim in yeshiva was the first time I really saw Purim in a serious way. And it was also the first time I ever drank alcohol and I did so in dangerous ways, which I regret and I'm actually scared of sometimes about that culture. But I saw a totally different type of celebration of Purim. And now as a parent and also spending my life in Jewish education, I see different aspects of Purim. So what were the, and by the way, I'm not sure I feel that way about a lot of other Jewish holidays. Maybe it's the masquerade that you can kind of lean into different Purim identities throughout your life. But what happened with you? Like, why did this story change for you?
0: So as a little kid, I'll be honest, I was afraid of Purim. It was the day where on the school bus, kids wore scary masks. There was like an anxious anticipation of what I would confront in school. I was a very timid and anxious kid. And I was, I was quite literally scared of the day. And then in my teenage years, I grew up in a home where I would call my father. He was kind of like the bah humbug, the uh, uh, Scrooge. Scrooge of the Christmas story. Whoever it is who says bah humbug, that was my father. He did not like Purim. He's a button down, suit and tie kind of doctor, takes things very seriously. And Purim in my teenage years was an act of rebellion. For me to like Purim was to almost forge a new identity for myself. My yeshiva years were marked in the same way, but the word that you didn't use that I think is a big part of your yeshiva experience everywhere, really, is like the hype of Purim, the expectations of Purim, how amazing, how wild, how crazy is this day going to be, and that extended throughout my yeshiva years until I almost, in my mid-twenties, there was no hype left in me, and Purim felt very empty and felt very superficial, where I would hype it and kind of play into the hype, but I didn't really feel any of it inside, until I learned to embrace a Purim of almost quietness and smallness, still having the su'uda, the festive meal, still drinking a little bit, but really reorienting the focus of a Purim that I can tell my friends about, which is very external, to a Purim that I could be in a moment and create a mm-hmm. moment with singing, with with a meal that doesn't have a thousand interruptions and people running out and being crazy and they can talk about later, but a meal that for these couple hours, I could be present in a place and just embrace whatever it brings me. And that's kind of the Purim I have now.
1: So it's interesting. One of the forces that's very powerful in the difference between traditionally observing communities and not traditionally observing communities is that Purim is like a weird day also in traditional households because you do have this big festive meal, which might resemble festive meals on other holidays, but you can be cooking all along. You can have music playing in the back. It just feels totally different. And that's – I think it's one of the forces that makes it feel weird.
0: Yes. It's a holiday,
1: but it kind of doesn't have the same rules as other holidays, and you're driving around and dropping off food packages throughout the day. It's just totally it's otherworldly totally its own it's its own thing., yes. it's otherworldly. great. That's a great way to put it. So so let's go through my seven theses. Yes. and I'll tell you a little bit about each one of them and then you can you can tell me what you like you don't like. The overall thesis of this of it is that part of the reason I think people love Purim and hate Purim, because a lot of people actually who hate Purim, partly because of the politics and the violence and the drinking and the sex and all of the stuff that's in there, is that I think Purim is true and that's scary. <laughs> And the first way in which I think Purim is true is this first thesis, no one's coming to rescue us. The central plot point of the book of Esther is that God doesn't actually intervene in the story, right? You have to look for it. You have to bring God into the story. We can talk about that a little bit more later. But the, the thing that Mordechai does to try to solve the problem of the Jewish people is he does what diaspora Jews have done around politics throughout Jewish history, which is you first ask, who do I know? How can I get somebody in on the inside? Who owes me a favor? Right? Mordechai had intervened to help the king and he didn't ask for anything in return, save the king's life, but save that favor for me later. And then the whole story of the book of Esther, I'm, I'm sorry to be very crude, is she masquerades her way in and sleeps with the king. And then that's like the best tool of access that we as diaspora Jews have in a period of our powerlessness. So, the first big idea about Purim is this very overwhelming realization that, like, we like to tell the story of Jewish holidays as they tried to kill us, God rescues us. But this might be the story of they try to kill us. And by the way, throughout Jewish history, oftentimes they were right, they'd succeeded. But if you knew the right people, And could pull the right strings or push the right buttons, you might be able to work your way out of a particular jam. So how does that read to you as a a theory of the book?
0: I like the title. I think you're placing too much of an emphasis on the political maneuvering. I think that for me, what no one is coming to rescue us is this seminal shift of God being manifest through Jewish peoplehood and through the Jewish community, I don't think it is a coincidence that of all the books, the one where we are first throughout called Jews and not Yisraelim and not you know the biblical name we were called Bnei Yisroel, the children of Israel. Over here, for the first time, we're identified specifically. We're kind of in this exilic liminal state in between the first temple and the second temple. And we are called in this period as Yehudim, Jews. And I think there's a lot of significance to that. I think one of the significance is that in the very name and language of Yehuda is the name of God. And I think that this liminal state in between these exiles was a moment where we learned how to apprehend and see godliness through communal unity, communal interaction. It wasn't just Esther going behind closed doors. It was Mordecai also urging the Jewish people to come together. And I think we have moments like this of stress that we still see nowadays, you know, probably began most famously in 1840 in the Damascus affair, which Abraham Karp said is the first time that we consciously got together the different factions of the Jewish people. And I think that was like the original moment of the Purim story. It's like, we have to gather together now. We're in exile. We're dispersed. We need to feel that sense of unity because God now is going to be manifest through the Jewish people.
1: Okay, so you're skipping ahead to number three. Let's go to number three, and then we can come back to this question of Noah's coming, help us. It's good, it's good. They're connected. All seven are connected, which is this notion of faith in the darkness. There is a way to read the story, right? And part of what motivates this kind of reading is the rabbinic – commentary on the book of Esther in the Talmud, which suggests that the book is basically a midrash, a commentary on the line in the book of Deuteronomy, the scariest curse that's given to the Israelites. You know, it's all these curses of you're going to do terrible things and you're going to get punished. But the worst curse of all in the book of Deuteronomy is not I'm going to punish you, it's I'm going to hide my face from you. Haster astir For which it's so obvious that Esther is a play on that, right? This is a time of divine hiddenness. And I always think about when I read that it's it reminds me of like as a parent especially with little children, right? Punishment when you punish your children it's a sign of a relationship. The worst thing you can do with your kids is like ignore them. It's like terrifying. They don't know what you think, they don't know what you feel. And that's a little bit of that suggestion, God ignores the Jewish people. But the consequence of that ignoring is that you get left vulnerable to the elements. Right? And the thing that you're most vulnerable to are predators like the Amalekites. And Agag is the descendant of the Amalekites. Haman is an Amalekite. You're vulnerable to elements. Not that I'm punishing you by putting you in the hands of Amalek. I'm letting loose that you're out there. Now, so I guess it's a little bit, when you say the way that Jews respond to that is by creating collectivity, becoming a Jewish people, I guess it's a little bit of a Rorschach test for us theologically. I view that as ain't nobody coming to help us, we're going to have to help ourselves. But it sounds like you read it a little bit more like, theologically, the expression of the Jewish people coming together is an expression of a relationship to God. Does that sound right? Do you you see God in the story?
0: Yes. I think that we shift in the Megillah, in the story of Esther, to this universe that we still live in nowadays of God speaking through the Jewish people, where I think other religions in this axial age, when we're moving away from this open prophetic revelation, there are other religions who were looking for, whether it was specific messiahs or other movements of prophecy. I think there's something, a deliberate emphasis in the Jewish faith that we now need a God, we need theological meaning to emerge from the Jewish people. You know, there's something else that's prominently absent in the Megillah. People pay a lot of attention to the name of God, I'm always struck by the land of Israel, where it seems throughout the Megillah, Esther has a lot of opportunities to request. After the annihilation of the Jews has already been thwarted, she could have requested, how about we go back to Israel? That could have been her second request. Uh, I I think there's something deliberately exilic about this, where the Megillah is a handbook for how to find God through obscurity. And if you look towards the heavens, you're not going to hear a voice. But if you look towards each other, you can actually make out those whispers of God speaking through silence, through the collective action of the Jewish people.
1: Yeah, there's a Talmudic text to that effect also, of is in the period of divine absence, is there real hiddenness? Or is it like God is obscuring God's face, as it were? with the back of a hand. In other words, is the feeling of a shadow, a feeling of distance or absence? But I guess there's two paradoxes that are embedded in what you said about this as a diaspora or an exile story. You're right. I believe it's the only biblical book that we have where the entire plot takes place outside the land of Israel. The land of Israel is not referenced. So it's clearly a story about diaspora. There's two tricky parts of that. One is, one of my favorite lines in the whole book is that Haman says about the Jewish people, Yesh no There is one nation that is dispersed and scattered among all the people. So he sees a collective unity of the Jewish people that the Jewish people rarely exhibit. And that's a kind of classic trope, that anti-Semites see us as being more collective than we see about ourselves, (laughs) right? If all the Jews are scattered throughout these 127 provinces, we're not really thinking in collectivity in diaspora, but our enemies do. That's kind of one interesting dimension of this. The other, though, is Greek-speaking Jews in antiquity have their own version of the book of Esther, which appears in the Apocrypha, and God's in it. Like, diaspora Jews, when they were telling the story, wanted it to be a really pious story. So, maybe this isn't really a diaspora story. Maybe it's Jews in the land of Israel looking at their diaspora Jews and making fun of them. They're not part of the covenant. They're not part of the theology. They're kind of on their own.
0: I actually heard that recently, the suggested from some scholars that the entire Megillah is almost like a play and an absurdity of mocking it. I, I have mixed feelings about that. The first time I heard it is like, hey, wait a second, like, don't you, <laughs> don't you make fun of Miguel Zester? I think there's something profound to that. I, I think history has borne out that the Jews in Israel who were looking at these fledgling communities that they assumed rightfully so at that point in time would disappear. I think ultimately the joke is on that perspective, we haven't disappeared, even within the exile, even within that absence, and the fact that it was written in that way, even initially as an absurdist take of like being written out, and then it being reinterpreted to be written back in, in and of itself, seems to be a per miracle of sorts. You know that yeah. that it was initially written as an absurdist take that we're not a part of this theological narrative. And through the powers that the story kind of highlights in these subtle ways about the need to construct theological meaning in your own life, we reconstructed the story to have that theological meaning, which is kind of the greatest superpower of the Jewish people.
1: Yeah, no, that I think is true. That's, I think, extraordinary. The desire to see God in a story that may not even have been the way it was written to be. I do read this as a parody, as a satire of sorts, and I think everybody is being mocked. You know, I'll give you an example. In the, I believe it's the fourth chapter uh, of Esther, right after the decree has come down that the Jews are going to be killed, it describes that Mordechai, uh, the first thing he does upon hearing the news is what? You remember? He, tar- he tears yeah. He tears. his clothes. In other words, when a Jew gets threatened, the first thing the Jew does is sit shiva. Uh. That's like absurd. Right, he doesn't organize. That's the second move. But the organizing even takes place, and now here Esther is being mocked also. She hears that this has happened, and the thing she's most worried about is that her Jewish uncle (laughs) appears disheveled. She's embarrassed by his performance Mm -hmm. of his theater, and so she has to clean him up before she can respond. I don't know. I think think everybody's being mocked in terms of our instincts, but I think you're right interpretively that the decision— To read this book with a theological valence is almost a rebellion against the conditions that prompt the kind of writing of this book. We want to see this story as something different.
0: I think that's the entire background of Esther's plea at the very end of the Megillah and certainly through the Talmudic interpretation that she begs for this to be included within the canon. And Mm -hmm. initially, the rabbis did not want to include this story as a part of the canon. And I noted actually in an article that I wrote for Tablet Magazine when we concluded Tractate Megillah That there's a beautiful explanation I heard from the Ibn Ezra, uh, where the Ibn Ezra actually writes, it's very mundane, that the reason why the name of God is missing from the Megillah is because it was initially written as a letter, like a personal correspondence that they sent out to all the communities, and they were afraid that it would get thrown out and discarded. And I look at the entire give-and-take and dialogue to include this personal letter retelling the story as a part of the canon. As this enduring exilic angst and dream of will our transient temporal stories in this long unending diaspora have the dignity and merit to be included in that great grand canon of the Jewish people. And that, to me, is a real part of the tension, and what Esther came as a reminder is that even your personal letters that may be discarded, that may be thrown away, this, too, has the theological weight and dignity to be a part of the great Jewish canon.
1: That's awesome. We'll come back to that because it comes to the high holidays of the skeptic point. Let me just I'm, throw I'm in getting number getting two. I'm getting killed
0: on, on your structure here. On
1: my list. I know, my <laughs> list. Um All right, let's go back briefly to number two. Probably the best example of what you're describing, which is the desire to see theology in what is ultimately a secular story, is the king is dead, long live the king, um, which is the attempt to read every time it says hamelech, referencing to the king, there is a tradition sometimes to chant that, to sound like it's actually not about the earthly flesh and blood king, but that's a reference to God. And the most famous expression of it is, I believe it's the beginning of chapter six, when it says, on that night... Uh, The king's sleep was disturbed, right? The king couldn't sleep. And that's this theological suggestion that God got the message. And it echoes, right, echoes with the book of Exodus where it says, you know, God heard the suffering of the Israelites and then responds. This God actually has to be kind of prompted to return into history. So on one hand, that pull is there to what you're describing. On the other hand, it helps us understand how so much of this book is about the masquerading of truth. Why not just say that, right? And that's the invitation to masquerade is to say, no, nothing is quite what it seems. And when you're in a masquerade, sometimes you can figure out who's behind a mask and sometimes you totally get it wrong. And that's a dangerous position to be in.
0: I I hope it's okay to respond in in this direction. But there's a comedian who maybe some of your listeners may remember. His name is Gary Shanling. Gary Shanling was famous for all of these meta comedies. He had the Gary Shanling Show, which was a self-aware show that he was on a show. He had this show called the Larry Sanders Show, which kind of gave birth to The Office and Parks and Rec, where you realize that there's a camera present on the show itself. So I wrote a different article, happens to also be for Tablet, about how Gary Shanling embodies Purim. It happens to be his yard site uh, (laughs) is on Purim. He he died his yard site. I think this is sixth yard site. Uh, he died on Purim. And I was very deeply moved by a documentary that Judd Apatow made called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think this, the king is dead, long live the king. The idea that we are all, so to speak, actors now playing a part masquerading that in the absence of a king we now need to play that part that the king yeah. is serving two functions it has this meta component that we know that we live embodied lives but we are also characters in a much larger unfolding story and I think the comedy and life frankly of Gary Shanling, I'm sorry to get so emotional and theological about this <laughs> uh, off forgotten comedian really embodies that idea
1: yeah, I mean, again, there's all the characters are Rorschach tests also. So it, when Mordechai asks Esther to get involved, right? And, and this is also one of the most loaded and famous lines of the book is, if you remain silent at this moment, salvation will come to the Jewish people from someone else, and you and your household will be destroyed. And again, it's this, how do you want to read that? Do you want to read that as, it's a great motivational speech? Because it is. In the history of motivational speeches, it's the best, right? I actually read it as a threat. We'll figure out another way. You and your household will be destroyed. But we'll figure out a way. Do you want to be on the side or not? And then when Esther decides what she wants to do, you can pick up on her behavior. She has people fast for her. Is that because she's praying or because she's mobilizing? Is she organizing? And again, like, I think you said it elegantly, are we the king, right? And the king is such a buffoonish character that he makes room for the possibility of human beings picking up that work. And maybe that's covenant, ultimately, <laughs> That God will do what God will do, but makes space for human responsibility to actually fill out the rest of the story.
0: I think threat is too strong of a word. I think it is a poignant choice that we are still faced with today. Again, if the theme of this is Esther as exilic strategy guide, then I think all of us in the exile, in the diaspora, in the world that we live in today are faced with the same choice, Do you want to be a part of this larger story? Do you want your personal letter to be a part of this? It doesn't have to be. And there are many people who chose otherwise. It's not a threat so much that your family will be destroyed, it's that your family will be lost and that you're not going to be A part of this story. You'll have a different story. You may have your own letter, but if you want to incorporate that personal letter, that love letter to Judaism that you write in the confines of your home in the tri-state area in South America and in wherever you are living, you need to make a choice to be a part of a larger story. And if you're not going to be a part of that larger story, you're going to be lost and your family is going to have to find another way to Mm -hmm. preserve their narrative.
1: You know, there's a little bit of a long lost minhaga custom that Jews used to do, which was their own Purims. So something would happen to your family on an anniversary of salvation, right? Of being saved from it, you would make your Purim. I learned this from my principal in my high school, Rabbi William Altschul. Every year, he celebrated Altschul Purim. And he would like bring in Entenmann's donuts and we would sit around and he would talk about like this happened. I don't even remember what it was. It was a terrible incident in his family's past and they would celebrate it. And I think you're you're hitting on this of there's a kind of empowerment to say, I decide to make this moment a moment of the salvation of the Jewish people, even just through the prism of my own story, because that's not an act of separating from the Jewish people. It's actually an act of attaching my destiny. Ultimately, like the destiny of the Jewish people is the destiny of our families what we decide to do.
0: I could not agree with you more. I've always noted this interesting contrast. And these two holidays to me are almost the yin and yang. They're like old friends, uh, Purim and Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is the day where we mourn the loss of the temple, where we began exile. And it's always struck me that there's a very deliberate effort that days of mourning should be included within Tisha B'Av. Don't make your own familial Tisha B'Av you know, when we went through the Crusades and there were a lot of polemics and discussion following the Holocaust, that we should try to subsume all tragedy under Tisha b'a. And Purim is the exact opposite. Purim is we encourage you, like your family went through something, make your own, have your own special Purim, doesn't matter the day, it could be in Sivan, could be in the later on of the month of Adar, whenever it is. And I think it speaks exactly to the point we've been discussing, which is the notion of taking your personal Even temporal, exilic experiencing and using the lens of Purim to have it be a part of the larger canon of the Jewish people.
1: Amazing. So we'll come back to this a little bit more uh, near the end on this idea of the high holidays, the skeptic. Let's go ahead to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we might die. Uh This is a big part of the story is eating feasting. The book opens with a feast that lasts for weeks and weeks. Drinking features throughout the story, and as a result, one of the mitzvot of Purim, one of the obligations is to drink until a person can't tell the difference between Blessed Mordechai and Cursed Haman, which of course has, you can imagine, the interpretive tradition around this. Do you actually have to be so blind, drunk that you can't know the difference, does a certain amount of wine create the suspicion that you might know the difference, etc. But there's no question that the physicality of the story and the ways that we're supposed to commemorate the story or mark the story are linked. I tend to read it again because I see this as an anthropocentric story is that we're leaning into both – this is one of the most embodied biblical stories. Food and sexuality run through this book, and the way in which we kind of acknowledge that we are human and not divine is by imitating or replicating that physicality, which brings with it enormous freedoms, the way that we are loosened by alcohol, and also enormous perils and dangers. The king needs to be drunk, both to be persuaded by Haman to do what he does, and he kind of needs to be drunk slash seduced by Esther in order to be brought back. To the Jewish people's side. So I'd love for you to just reflect on the physicality, both of the book itself, but also of the way that we're meant to celebrate it for better or worse.
0: So I'm going to drop another theory that I don't think I've ever shared and that you could cut me off in the middle. You're more than welcome to, uh, to just cut my mic. My other theory is that the book of Purim and the story of Esther is a retelling in many ways of the story of the golden calf. Uh, The story of the golden calf and the story of Purim both begin with a miscalculation in time. The Purim story is they miscalculate how long the 70-year exile is going to take. The story of the golden calf begins with a miscalculation of how long Moshe Rabbeinu uh, Moses goes up to the mountain to accept. They think he's going to come back in 40 days. And pandemonium breaks loose. Both the Jewish people in the golden calf and in the Purim story say, we are now lost. We no longer have a leader. This exile is going to take forever. And if you fast forward to the end of the story of the golden calf, there is a really mm-hmm. Purim-centric imagery where Moses is literally asked God To see his face, and they have this intimate moment together. He says, God, show me your ways. And God says, I will show you my back, but I will not show you my face. Almost you'll be able to see me in retrospect. You won't be able to see my face. And Moses does two things afterwards one is the description, and one is the action. Number one, right afterwards, he puts on a mask, he masquerades. The second thing is that. He doesn't realize how lofty and how intimate that moment is, so the language that the Torah uses as "umosha lo yada, Moshe did not know, kikaren or Puna that his face was illuminating. And I believe the lo yada means to not know, but it's the language that we use throughout the story in the Megillah of ad lo yada, that we're supposed to drink, become inebriated, have this physicality until we don't know. And I think the climax of both of these stories has a deliberate parallelism in our response to nihilism, in our response to a world that seems to be meaningless. We create a universe and rituals that are all meaningful and we're able to eat and drink and, again, let's just be clear with the—you keep on mentioning the sexuality part. I don't know what your poems were like as a child or as an adult. Mine did not have a great deal of sexuality, though, no, and obviously— No, but I'm
1: talking about the boundary— the,
0: story, the boundary and crossing. And boundaries.
1: And boundaries sure. are at risk. Yes. Yeah.
0: And I think the whole story of the Megillah comes from—there is a certain antinomianism, this breaking of the normal fixtures and boundaries of law and ritual that is very deliberate. Again, disclaimer to my listeners, I just don't want to get any letters. This is not a— disp- Compensation for sexual debauchery, but there are le- different levels of debauchery, and I do think that it is our response that, when confronted with a world and the possibility that everything is meaningless, let's create, if for just a moment, a world where everything, including physicality and materialism, can be meaningful.
1: I have a hard time with aspects of that read. I like it spiritually. First of all, I love the golden calf read. I think that's really interesting, and I want to spend more time on the different texts. I guess I struggle with this story in particular because the protagonists in the story are not doing what you're describing. Esther does not emerge as a character who is preaching temperance. You actually have to clean up Esther, as the rabbis do later on, to talk about her. She never actually touched the king. You have to clean her up in order for her to be useful as an image and as a template. And also, and here's the real problem, much of the performance that Jews have done of the celebration of Purim for hundreds of years has actually been with a drinking that is connected to debauchery. So, you have to make a move away from how this holiday has been traditionally celebrated. You have to read it against the text, it seems to me, in order to get to the place that you want to do, which is more like a kind of a stoic read of we have a healthy relationship with our physicality as opposed, you know, us versus them. I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do with the fact that, like, you're going to see all over the Jewish world and later this week, a tremendous amount of fall-down drunkenness as envisioned by some of our sources as the proper performance of the mitzvah.
0: Well, there's a lot more to unpack there. First, I would say that the interpretations of Esther... Do not excuse all of her behavior. There is an antinomianism to the character of Esther, particularly the last time, the time when she approaches Ahashverosh, when she has not been called, is not excused halachically and is seen as an antinomian boundary crossing where she goes in and offers herself to save the Jewish people, mm-hmm. which does not have a great deal of halachic premise. The other thing is, yeah, maybe I'm a a kind of a a failing just optimist when it comes to the drunkenness and my ability to see Jewish imagery, even in our most lowly of states. You know, we mentioned earlier the turning point in the Megillah is God kind of uh, awakening from his sleep. And I think there is definitely a theme throughout the rituals, particularly drinking, of the role of sleep in almost falling back asleep and imitating, so to speak, that sleeping God, so to speak, and how even in our exile and even in our sleep, we are able to apprehend God, so to speak. I think there's something to be said that the way Maimonides, Rambam, describes prophecy is that the prophets used to go to sleep in order to prophesize and connect with God. And maybe our exilic prophecy is, with all of the absurdity and chaos of what it means to live in exile, maybe the only taste of that prophetic world we could have is you know drinking a little too much god forbid nobody should endanger their health Mm -hmm. Uh, and taking that nap and looking at all of the (laughs) silliness and absurdity of what goes on on purim and finding meaningfulness there as well which you know stretches different people in different ways and to say it's not a stretch would obviously that's a part of it stretching ourselves being able to find godliness in there too
1: Right. I mean, we talked about masquerade before, and I our family does masquerade in a very significant way on Purim with elaborate costumes. I think it's part of the fun. But Will you be announcing it's,
0: it's, on this show what abso- you're masquerading as this year? Absolutely
1: not. Absolutely <laughs> not. Um, no spoilers. But I think it's supposed to be serious fun. And by which I mean symbolic fun yes. in the same way that like what we do on the Pesach Seder, it's like, oh, we're doing this for the kids. No, you're doing it for yourself and how you communicate it to your kids. You learn a lot from that yourself. And I think, by the way, the same thing goes for the food. So. Again, I don't do that much drinking now, and and certainly not with teenagers in the house. And I certainly don't want to model that for them. But we do some dumb foods, like stupid feasting. So like uh, we, you know, with our hosts for our Purim Suda, for whom we're not going to be with this year for the first time in ten years since they moved to Israel. But like one Same of the things with we did, me. Yeah, we're I also I want, <laughs> we're all getting
0: abandoned for people who are sick of the exilic story.
1: Exactly. They 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 read this book too seriously. One of the things we do every year for our Purim Suda was batter and deep fry a kishka. Which is like a stupid thing to eat, but like it helps to channel the chapter one of the Megillah of like a kind of feasting that was no limit. Okay, so let me go to the next one, which is this question of, which I think might aggravate you so hopefully it will. Um, So if you're going to mock the powerlessness of this story, of the Jewish response in chapter four, I think you are equally bound to mock what the Jews do when they actually have power. That to me is the ultimate turnaround of the story is that by the ninth chapter of the book, You've created basically a situation of mutually assured destruction, to borrow a Cold War term, and the possibility of detente. Because of the stupid bureaucratic Persian laws, the king cannot overwrite the previous genocidal decree against the Jews, but he can put out a second decree, which is the Jews are allowed to fight for themselves. What should happen is everybody lays down their weapons. What instead happens by the ninth chapter is a kind of carnage of violence perpetrated by the Jews on their neighbors— with now the support of the regime. (laughs) And what's amazing is they keep going back to the king and they say, uh, we have more people we want to kill. And the king signs the permission to allow them to do it. They ask for permission to hang Haman and the 10 sons of Haman, which they do. And it's hard not to read. One of the punchlines of this book is a great deal of your life experience as the Jewish people in exile is going to be powerlessness And as, you know, some Jewish thinkers warn throughout Jewish history, the minute that it turns about, you're not going to be as good as you think you're going to be. What do you make about that, about this story as being about not only the morality of powerlessness, but also perhaps a cautionary tale about Jews actually getting power?
0: I think there may be elements of that. It's definitely not a part of my lived Megillah memory or experience. I I definitely— Spend time and think, though I probably don't have an answer that is as profound and satisfying. Most people, when we tell over the Megillah to our children, kind of stop with you know the plot being foiled. Maybe they'll do the Haman right. and his son's getting hung. Most people don't talk about the second request of Esther, and it wasn't peace. It wasn't to go to Israel. It was to have retribution against their enemies. And then there's like a final PS that has something to do with tax law.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that. That's empire. Yeah. Which is
0: how the Megillah Megillah ends, and maybe we'll talk more about that in a moment. To me, I think the subtext of this, and again, this is not satisfying, and I have no idea in history whether or not this actually happened. I know Professor Elliot Horowitz in his famous book, Reckless Rights, I believe, makes a lot of the violence in the memory of Purim. It is not something that has ever resonated with me, though I did read, I've given classes on the book, I like it a lot, I'm not condemning the book, it's just not something that ever resonated with me. To me, it is the desperate need, the yearning of people to see that there is some retribution, some manifestation of justice in this world. And embodied justice is how this story ends. And I think in a prophetic world, you're scared whether or not you're going to go to heaven or hell. And I think in exile, you're scared maybe there's no heaven and there's no hell. Mm -hmm. And part of what retribution within the lived experience in the Megillah is showing the Jewish people is the ability to, to glimpse or have some measure of divine providence, some measure of embodied justice in the world. And that's, to me, kind of how the story wraps up.
1: Yeah. I mean, divine justice is great. I I would rather we be a little attentive, especially when there is a state of Israel with a strong army. I want us to be attentive to the times when the fantasy of vengeance also has its own pornographic consequences. I mean, I, I was in Yeshiva in 1994— and I was there for Purim the year after Baruch Goldstein opened fire in the mosque on Purim. And it, it wasn't a coincidence that it took place on Purim, that you could read a book like this and do something as grotesque as that. Now, of course, those are incredible outlier incidents in Jewish history. Of course, it is the case that we're only 75 years into a project of Jewish power at the place that it is. But I part of why I'm so magnetically drawn to this book is because chapter 9 would have made no sense to anybody throughout Jewish history except as a language of justice that they couldn't envision for most of Jewish history. And then you get awakened to the possibility that maybe since 1948, the piece of Torah that we're also supposed to glean from this book is a piece of the book that now makes sense for the first time, that we're acquainted with the possibility. We're not just warned of, be careful, they're going to come to get you. We're also warned a little bit about, be careful when you have the capacity to come and get them.
0: I can appreciate that. Again, it's not at the center of my perm memory and perm experiences, and obviously that's being filtered not through deep scholarship, right. but just like, you know, the stories that I grew up with. But I can appreciate that there is a subtext in this story about the responsibility of power itself and not, you know, we, we use the language in the Talmud of we are still servants of... Achashverosh, we are still kind of living in the shadow of this story. And perhaps part of the shadow which this story casts is the responsibility and how circumspect we have to be when the crown lies on our head.
1: Yeah. So, that leads to the to this last one, which is about empire endures. So, you alluded to the very strange last chapter of the Begillah. It's only four or five verses. And the chapter 10 starts with Achashverosh levies a tax scheme upon all of the provinces. You know, I've been in schools where people boo. When that comes <laughs> yeah. out, they're finished booing. <laughs> How de- long? They, boo the, they boo the taxes. Yeah, it depends on the politics. They have some people <laughs> have cheer? defense which you know, <laughs> It's hard to shake the feeling of, there's something absurd about that, like the drama's over. It's hard to shake the feeling that what's really happening here is, well, empire persists. <laughs> the world was not turned upside down. In this case, we like to think the world was upside down, but only this incident with respect to the Jews was upside down. But the real lesson is that the empire will go on and it will continue to be the regime that it is. And who are we relative to that story? How do you read that last section of the book?
0: I honestly, just to be clear, I did not know that you were going to ask this question. I have (laughs) a... I would say a mild obsession with the notion of mass and why the Megillah ends on this, though I think the direction with the deeply mystical imagery that it draws for me may resonate less and be less relevant to your listeners. But Lord knows that's not going to stop me from sharing it because I'm incorrigible like that. You're here. Uh, To me, Mas has mystical imagery, which is that the letter Mas is made from the Hebrew letters Mem and Samach, and maybe we're ending with some
1: questionable
0: Purim Torah. A Mem is a square, and a Samach, most notably, is a circle. And I think that the notion of reconciling squares and circles— which is really what the number pi is all about, which is the irrationality, the transcendence of a number that can't be expressed by any fraction, is the enduring question that Purim poses to all of us. Where mas represents the ever-reaching quest of the Jewish people to square the circle, to reconcile the mem and the samech. The mem being the square, which I in my own mind, affiliate with more sequential, earthly, bounded nature, and the circle being infinity, being something that is transcendent, where God embodies all of us, and finding a sense of self in a purely godly world. Once you glimpse the rest of the Purim story and realize we're all playing parts and God's been the puppeteer the whole time and then having to move back into the mundaneness of everyday life with all of the responsibilities and free will and choice and what you just mentioned, you know, taking responsibility for the power that you rightfully have. To me, that's the question of the empire continues and we still need to put an effort to square that circle. That we can't leave the Purim story and say, well, God runs the world, so now I guess whatever I do, that whatever antinomianism I'm involved with, whatever power I have, I can do it because the moral of the poem story is that I'm an agent of God. You have to press the brakes and realize that there is still something Bridging the gap between the Mem and the samach that taxation represents, bridging the gap between our sequential bounded power of human beings and that transcendent agent of God that's represented where the king is also the king of kings, is still something we need to reconcile, integrate, and contend with.
1: Fascinating. I have a much more mundane read, (laughs) which is much more mundane, which is Empire, Empires, and that's where the antidote of Matanot Lev gifts to charity, that's where building a social net among the Jewish people, that's the Jewish people's response to empire. Because ultimately, that's what Jews did throughout Jewish history. They kind of segmented. Most stories didn't end with the Jewish queen in the halls of power. Most of them ended with either this terrible thing happened to us, or crisis was averted. We can't really control that. And ultimately, the message is, The empire is going to continue its tax scheme and we may find ourselves again on the wrong side of this vizier or that one. But maybe we can remedy the amechad, mifuzar, miforad problem. Maybe we can remedy our dispersion, our disconnection from one another. Maybe we can build at least holistic societies where we care for the vulnerable in our midst. We don't have to wait to be mobilized. To respond that way, we actually are capable of building ethical model societies within our midst. Charity, essentially, it's a way of saying until there's a radical overhaul of the political known world, charity is the antidote by which communities construct themselves. Yeah, go I, ahead. I don't think
0: that's mundane. I think that's deeply profound. And I think that's very much in line with everything we've been discussing, where peoplehood, agency, empire needs to now be constructed through the Jewish people. And the way that we reconcile, you know, our own human agency and that divine transcendence is through the charity communal building yeah. that's happening on the grounds, and, and I think that's quite beautiful and quite profound.
1: So let me end with the one I skipped over before, which is, I find this to be the high holiday of the skeptic. We're different people theologically. You and I. I. find myself much more, you and I, um, I find myself much more on the side of of skepticism, and one of the things that I'm drawn to in the story is how much the text foregrounds how arbitrary sometimes this stuff is. That's why the whole story is premised on the throw of the dice that Haman does, as if to say it's not just the date of the persecution, it's just that's sometimes how it goes. This is why our tradition weds Purim to Yom Kippur, because that too is premised on the drawing of lots between the goat that is sacrificed in the temple and the one that is thrown off of a cliff, there is a kind of topsy-turviness, a lack of predictability. In fact, our tradition also says that post-redemption, Purim's still gonna be around, maybe to remind us of the difference between a world in which things are clear, that's the redemptive world, and the times where things um, feel deeply arbitrary. And I find that so enchanting precisely because it's broken. (laughs) I find that enchanting because it feels to me like the one time of year where we see things with clarity for what they are, and we just accept them. So, I, for me, this is High the Holidays. The skeptic—you're less of a skeptic than me. Is it? You know, what? How of those? How does that story of the High Holidays connect for you?
0: Th- that resonates with me deeply. I would maybe change a, a little bit of the language, but I love the contrast to Yom Kippur. I, I think, in many ways. What we do during the high holidays, we dress in all white, we show up to synagogue even when we're not normally accustomed to it. We accept upon ourselves certain stringencies, we're more careful. Uh, Yom Kippur to me is the holiday of striving, of fake it till you make it, of trying to become something that you may not be the rest of the year. And Purim, and you ended on this, is really the holiday of self-acceptance, of finding God where you are, in your exilic, diasporic life, in your skeptic's mind, in your world which seems to be totally absence of God in your life, in many ways it seems to be absence of God, of looking at that mirror and saying, even here I don't need to dress up in all white, I don't need those stringencies and that striving, but even in that place of where I am right now— through that self-acceptance that I think Purim embodies, God can be found here too.
1: Well, we'll end with that. Listen, friends, I don't know if we persuaded you. Here are two Jews who see the world quite differently, but both of us seem to have a love of this strange, bizarre Jewish holiday, one that I would love to see be taken as seriously as the high holidays or at any other time of the year. So thanks for all for listening. We wish you a deeply freilich in Purim, which is the the way of conveying the Purim after all of this serious business um, also is and is meant to be the Jewish holiday of joy. And special thanks to my guest, Rabbi Dr. David Beshevkin, for being here today. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Svikalman and edited by Gareth Hobbs at Silver Sound NYC. With special thanks to Corey Choi, assistance from Mary Miller and Shalhebit Schwartz, and music provided by So Called. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically about a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We're always looking for ideas of what to cover in future episodes. Sometimes it doesn't line up that the Jewish holidays later that week. So if you happen to have a topic you want to hear about, if you have comments on this episode, please write to us at identitycrisis at You can follow us on Twitter at Hartman underscore INST and on Instagram at Hartman Institute. You can also rate us and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening.